has been speaking and anticipating and predicting and embodying this today for uh, two years worth of, uh, of sermons here and 26 uh, chapters worth of uh, literature. So uh, that's what he's been about. He was born for this moment, born to die. He was baptized for this moment. He, was t- he, he taught the Word and taught the prophecies of the Old Testament and taught what he taught for this moment. He spoke in parables for this moment. He performed miracles, especially healings, for this moment. He prophesied about his own death uh, for this moment, especially in recent weeks we've seen that. So we're here. Uh, we're in Matthew 27, 27 to 44. And I'm going to read it in full to begin, and we're going to take this uh, really kind of from a couple of angles here today, and I'll mention that after I uh, finish reading. But let's read it in full to begin. It'll be on screen. Verse 27, then the soldiers of the governor took Jesus into the governor's headquarters, and they gathered the whole battalion before him. And they stripped him and put a scarlet robe on him, and, and twisting together a crown of thorns, they put it on his head and put a reed in his right hand. And kneeling before him, they mocked him, saying, Hail, King of the Jews. And they spit on him and took the reed and struck him on the head. And when they had mocked him, they stripped him of the robe and put his own clothes on him and led him away to crucify him. As they went out, they found a man of Cyrene, Simon by name. They compelled this man to carry his cross. And when they came to a place called Golgotha, which means place of a skull, They offered him wine to drink mixed with gall, but when he tasted it, he would not drink it. When they had crucified him, they divided his garments among them by casting lots. Then they sat down and kept watch over him there. And over his head, they put the charge against him, which read, This is Jesus, the King of the Jews. Then the two robbers were crucified with him, one on the right and one on the left. And those who passed by derided him, wagging their heads and saying, you who would destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days, save yourself. If you're the son of God, come down from the cross. So also the chief priests with the scribes and elders mocked him saying, he saved others, he cannot save himself. He's the king of Israel. Let him come down now from the cross and we will believe in him. He trusts in God. Let God deliver him now if he desires him. For he said, I am the son of God. And the robbers who were crucified with him also reviled him in the same way. All right, so here's how we're going to start today. Uh, If uh, you're newer to our series, this will be a new thing, but uh, if you've been here for a few weeks, this will be a a common thread you'll notice. Uh, We're going to talk just briefly, and this this will be, I don't want to be too passing because it's an important thing, but we're going to get to this idea of Jesus bearing our sins, specifically our derision or mockery of him, in a second, that's going to be our focus. Uh, but before we get there, I just want to make a few comments about all of the promises, Jesus' promises, and the Old Testament predictions of his, not just his arrival in the world, but of this precise moment as well, so that we can understand how much this has been orchestrated by God, how much it's been the plan A of Jesus Christ. And I'll, I'll make some more comments about that in just a moment. But uh, So five things here quick, and I'll go through these relatively a uh, quick one of these I'll comment some more on. But to begin, verses 30 and 31 in today's passage said, And they, the Roman uh, soldiers, spit on him and mocked him. In uh, Mark 10, 34, a different gospel account, but Jesus specifically predicts there before his death, and the Gentiles will mock me and spit on me. In verse 34 of today's passage, it says, They offered him wine to drink mixed with gall. In Psalm 69 of the Old Testament, it says, A Psalm of David for my thirst they gave me 
sour wine to drink. In the Gospel of John, different Gospel and New Testament uh, quotes, actually cites this idea of Jesus receiving sour wine as a fulfilling of Scripture, uh, this one in particular. Verse 35 in today's passage, they divided his garments by casting lots. Psalm 22 in the Old Testament, hundreds of years again before Jesus was even born, uh, written by David, says, they divide my garments among them, and for my clothing they cast lots. So these last two psalms I mentioned are written by David. We've been talking a lot about him, and Matthew has. Uh, God's inspiring this to be the case for a particular reason. In that, if you remember, if you remember two years ago, uh, we talked about his genealogy, Jesus is, and how David was a key figure in that. If you're unfamiliar who he is, he was the great king of Israel in the Old Testament through whom God promised a kingdom that would be eternal. And so we, uh, among other things, we, we linked Christ with Jesus in a bloodline kind of way. Jesus is the great, 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 essentially grandfather of Jesus Christ of the same tribe and so forth. But we also talked about how, like a grandfather to a grandson, there's familial resemblance. And that's how the Bible works with prophecy sometimes. It's not just a direct prophecy. It's, it's a type or a figure or anticipation of a, a latter event that Jesus would recapitulate or live out one more time just in a much better or spiritual way. So the Bible lots of times makes connections between David and Jesus. Not just they were two kings, not just they were from the tribe of Judah, but they were shepherds. And they took their throne effectively at the same age. And again, they were, they were promised eternal kingdoms. And Jesus actually enacted that. And many, they, they slayed giants. I mean, all these things really are, and there's many more as well, uh, are intended for us to see so that we might look at David and, and his psalms and say, well, what David experienced as a rejected king as a rejected kingly figure, Jesus would recapitulate or live out again. And so these psalms then are, are forward-looking. Uh, they are the songbook of Christ ahead of time, written around 1000 BC, but intentionally pointing to him nonetheless. So just to remind you guys of that. Two more. Back to our passage, verse 38. The two robbers were crucified with him. He had one on his right, one on his left. And Isaiah 53 in the Old Testament, the suffering servant of God that would bring forgiveness and restoration to the world that God promises, who was the Christ. And it says about him, he was numbered with the transgressors. So a literal fulfillment of that in Matthew 27. And finally, verse 40, the mockery, you who would destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days uh, as they mock him. Uh, back in John 2, 19 to 22, it says, Jesus answered them, Destroy this temple, and in three days uh, I will raise it up. The Jews said, It's taken 46 years to build the temple, and you'll raise it up in three days. But he was speaking about the temple of his body. When, therefore, he was raised from the dead, the disciples remembered that he had said this, and they believed the scripture and the word that Jesus had spoken. Okay, so why is this important? Uh, in a word, and we've been saying this and seeing this play out time and time again in Matthew. In fact, one of the key phrases that Matthew gives a lot, uh, if you remember from the, from the gospel, is this happened, or Jesus said this, to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet, and they quote it. It's this common recurring statement that Matthew is keen on or big on or bent towards uh, demonstrating that all of this is planned. So in one word then, this is important to see for us, so that as I said before, we'd see the control of God. We see the orchestration of God over this event and, and in no way in our minds see it as plan B. See it as, see it as something that just kind of happened along the storyline, un, um, unplanned, but as something that, was, that was, Jesus was bent on and intentional to bring about. So that then, we'd not see the cross as just an historical event and all the things surrounding the cross and his passion 
his sufferings as just an historical event, but as a theologically historical event. The very reason God created the world at all. And the very means by which he was always planning to save the world. This is the moment. And it, it's been spoken of and anticipated thousands of years beforehand. And right in Jesus' ministry, he predicts it days before, but also months and years before as well. He's been building towards this too. It's been, it's been quite clear. So, and I want you guys to see, and I, this is something that I've been aware of for a long time, been a Christian for a while, but I've been fre- I just freshly reminded of, it was a blessing for me this week, I was talking to some of our overseers this morning about this and encouraging them in it as well. So hopefully it will be for you too, even if it's not uh, the, the first time you're hearing this, but I want you to not miss the obvious. That these prophecies of the Old Testament and Jesus' predictions are focused on death, his death. You see how they're all about that? They're all about the death of the Son of God or the events surrounding the death of the Son of God, like the dividing of garments and casting lots that that David experienced first in the Old Testament, but now Jesus says the true David, the ultimate David, the second David, is now fully experiencing now in an ultimate rejection kind of of way. So it's either the, the explicit death of the Son of God on the cross that takes away our sins, or it's the events surrounding, but in either case, it's about this event. Isn't that interesting? I was kind of a, for a lot of you, it's kind of a dust statement, or for some of you, it's not, but for a lot of you, it is. But just think about that, how important it is to see that, how that at the heart of God is this, this crucial moment in salvation history for us not to miss. So if it helps, then kind of flip that around and think, what do we not see in the prophets? Like one prophecy you never see, for example, like in Isaiah or Zechariah or Jeremiah, is that I will send you one who will be your moral guide. You never see that prophecy. The prophecies are always bent towards the death of the Lamb of God. I will send one who will be your spirit guide. I will send one even to teach you, though he does teach, though he is called rabbi, at least for a time. Though that does happen, that's not, that's not the brunt of prophetic oracle in the Old Testament. The brunt of it is God sees a sin problem and, and a curse in the world, and love moves towards it and speaks into the mess, but what's his solution? Here's a rejected king. That's my solution. Here's a, and I'm the king. Here's a, reje- not, here's a teacher. Here's a rejected new David for you to walk among you and ultimately die in your place as the, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. That is time and time and time and time and time and time again the prophecy, the prediction. So we can't miss this. See, these things tell us as well, not just about God's control and orchestration over it, but his timeless plan to give himself glory and to save us, just lonely sinners, weak, wandering, wounded, dead in our sins. This has always, always, always been his plan. So it's not just a posture of control. That's part of it. We've seen that in Christ, but it's this prophetic image and promise-driven image of uh, control as well. So remember that God's plan A was not the manger, not Jesus' baptism, or his healings, or his teachings, though those are very important, his plan A has always been, and we see it in the prophets, and in Jesus's, from Jesus' mouth, was always, always the cross. All right, let's get more specific now. We're, we're talking in generalities, and I, I do want to spend more time on this latter part, because Matthew does, but I also didn't want us to miss how planned this has always, this has always been, and how much Scripture has been fulfilled and is being fulfilled here. So let's get more specific. Uh, the Bible does talk in both the specifics and the generals uh, quite a bit, so we'll move there now. But 
If we ask, what's specifically going on here? If we say Jesus is, is planning the cross, he's dying on a cross for the sins of the world, that's a general statement. The specific question would be, well, how? And in what sense is that happening? What else does this passage tell us, really, about what happened there? And it says uh, quite a bit. And so to address that, we're going to look at this uh, particular issue of Jesus bearing our derision or our mockery and ridicule of him. One of the things that Matthew is, uh, is trying to do here, God through him, in writing this for us, this account for us, is showing how, uh, the, as we look at the theological history of the cross, how much hatred and derision and rejection he took on. You see it just kind of like layered on like a stack of pancakes here? It's just like one thing after the other. You've got rejection, mocking, ridicule, abandonment, hatred, spitting. See how it just, and this is not the only passage either, of course. You guys, a lot of you guys know that. But it's, it's laid on layer-wise here from different parties, different individuals, Jews and Gentiles, higher-ups and lower types, the masses and the individuals. Everyone hates him. So let's just summarize this for you for a second here to give you an idea, though there's actually more than this, but this is the gist. Roman soldiers, so on the left is all the individuals, on the right is the form of derision. Roman soldiers spit on him and beat him. This is the Son of God who made everything with a word and he's there in the form of a human being. He became human. He's walking among them and someone spits on his face. Incredible. And beat him. The chief priests and the elders of the Jews mock him and ridicule him. Passers-by deride him, wagging their heads in disgust. The two robbers even, being crucified on his right and his left, also revile him. Even his 12 closest friends, his disciples, all are gone. They've run. They're all, they're all abandoned. Judas Iscariot betrayed him unto death, and the other 11 have just left him. They've, the closest friends, where are they, right? They have run as well. Even Simon of Cyrene that we met, read about here in this passage, we won't talk about much about him today, but even he had to be compelled to carry the cross. It was not something he was willing to do, but something that they had to force upon him. So no help there either. So the question here is, as we're confronted with this, and, and it's one of those, even if there's just one of these things, we could make the same point. But there's five heavy layers of derision and rejection there. So that, so that we would almost see this as a literary device of repetition and say, important. And we would make note of it. We understand, that's the, that's the big question. Why is this here? Why so much hatred and derision towards the Son of God? That's the big question we'll, uh, we'll spin off of for the rest of the morning. And I think there's two sides to this. There's the more obvious answer. And for a lot of you, it'll be more obvious. For some of you, maybe it won't because you're brand new to this, and that's fine. We'll talk about it. But the more obvious, because it's come up a little bit already in Matthew, the more obvious answer. That there's a less obvious one too, but on the more obvious side, especially on the part of the chief priests and the elders and the religious leaders of the Jews, earlier in the story, remember that he went above their law and changed it even at times, tweaked it, claimed to be the finish line of it and fulfill it, especially in reference to the Sabbath. You guys weren't here for that back in chapter 12. This is like when the gauntlet was thrown down, and it was at this point where it says, right in the passage, that after Jesus said this, after about the Sabbath, he did this in relation to that law, they set out to plan to kill him. 
some specific going on there. And so what he did was he claimed that he was, and actually in that moment he has disciples, his disciples with him, they're not keeping the Sabbath and they are called out on it by the chief priests and, and the elders, the scribes who are there. Why aren't your disciples keeping the Sabbath? And, and Jesus does not, uh, does not uh, condemn them for it. And the reason is because, as he says earlier in Matthew 11, he's the Sabbath. He gives rest for souls. He, he brings rest into the world in a way the Sabbath could only anticipate. And that's why in the New Testament you don't see Sabbath command. It's not something we are under as Christians anymore. We're under the law of Christ. We're under his rest. We're under spiritual release from the chaos of our hearts. And so when, when he's talking about the Sabbath in this capacity and, and even allowing for a time as disciples to not keep that, keep that command, but actually just keep it by being with him effectively, it's too much for them to handle. And they're offended, and they seek to kill him at that point. So the bigger gauntlet, actually, though, was at his trial a couple weeks ago, when I think it was Spencer preaching this, uh, said, or alluded to this, that he finally claimed to be, in that moment, before them, the Son of God, making himself equal with God. So in both those things, they hated him in their offense and in their misunderstanding of what the Messiah, who the Messiah, the anointed one, the king, the promised one, would be and what he would be all about. But there's more here as well. That's more the obvious side, or the, more, the, the side we've already seen play out a bit in Matthew, but there's a less obvious side that we're seeing play out a bit more here in today's passage narratively. And on, and on the less obvious side of things, we have to ask, well, kind of understand that about the chief priests of the elders and the Jews, but on the less obvious side of things is, why did all these non-Jewish people hate him so much as well? And why his friends? And why passers-by who are wagging their heads and shaking their fists at him? What do we learn from this theme theologically? Or maybe we could ask, why is it important, because God is always intending things to be written the way they are in the Bible, why is it important that the cross occurred in this manner, with this type of layered derision stacked up? Remember, he's on the cross at this time. Read about, this is, these are the moments leading up to the first couple of verses here actually being crucified. At this point, he's on the cross, being shook at and being mocked and being ridiculed and derided. And the answer is, and I'm going to give a, a broad answer to this, and we'll come back and unpack this specifically, uh, but the answer is, this is narrative, remember, the answer is to further show us, demonstrate to us, our preconditioned spiritual state before the God of the universe. It's a picture of sin. It's a picture then, thusly, of what Jesus, in part, died for. Because when we say, we make the statement all the time here, because the Bible does, Jesus Christ died on a cross for our sins. We're saying something general but gloriously true, right, when we say that. It's general, but it's, it's a true statement. It's good to say that. It's not wrong. But there are other ways to say that more expansively, especially with the idea of sin. And Matthew 27, I think, helps with this visually. This is a physical picture of that idea. Because when we think of sin, this is certainly true in my life, I'm guessing for many, if not all of you as well. We think of sin just naturally, we normally underdefine it. We don't define it well or more or robustly enough. We see it maybe only as like looking at pornography or lying to our spouse or friend, committing some other kind of sexual sin, the act of it, whether it's mind or, or action, maybe having extreme anger that bring about harm. 
upon uh, self and another individual. And there's obviously truth to this, right? Obviously. The Bible talks in these terms. Sin is something that's against God's standards. It offends him, and it hurts other people. And it hurts ourselves. It's self-harm as well. So sin is that. It's not wrong to think about sin in that way. Again, the Bible does, at least in part. It's just, if we stop there, it's underdefined. It's, it's not, we're stopping short of, if, it's, if we can speak about it in these terms, the glory of the doctrine of it. It's like we haven't really approached the, the sun yet. We're way back here. We kind of got to approach and get the, the heat on our face of it a bit. So then the question is, well, what else is it? If it's not just doing some things or not doing some things, omitting or committing, well, then what is it? And the answer, this, is why, this is why Matthew 27 is so great. The answer is, it's stuff like this that we're looking at today. This is what sin is. It's a deep-seated posture of rejection towards the Creator. We mock Him, we test Him, we spit on Him, we disbelieve in Him, we deride Him, and in all these things, we do not acknowledge Him as King. Romans 3 is, is uh, helpful here. And I'm summarizing because it's a longer paragraph, but a couple of clauses you get, especially from Romans 3.11, says, no one does good and no one seeks for God. So you see in those clauses how the first is talking about uh, sins of action. You know, no one, no one does good. You're sinning by doing evil, by not doing good. But on the right side, sin is also not seeking for God, which it, it could be very quiet and passive, but it's the same thing. No one does good and no one is seeking for God. We dethrone him and we deride. This is what sin is. More than just not doing evil, it's, it's really high treason. It's seeking to, to dethrone, if not murder, the king. It's the core issue. You think about it like a tree. This, if, if the branches are things like the actual committing of certain sins that don't, don't follow with God's standards, the trunk is rejecting the king, or in any way living as though he's not important or that he's not there. In fact, uh, back in Genesis 3, too, you, you see this. When Adam and Eve, our first parents, fall from grace and are banished from the Garden of Eden, the, it's the, the moment of temptation that Satan has them and he tempts them with. Remember, this is a great place to go, by the way, to learn about sin because when it comes into the world, what he tempts them with is uh, self-deification, so remember what he says in the garden. He says, Adam, Eve, or to Eve first, if you eat of this fruit that God said don't eat, you will not die. You will surely not die like God said you would. He's lying. He says, what will actually happen is you will learn the difference between good and evil. And here's the kicker. You will be like God. You see what sin is? It's being like God. It's thinking that we're divine. It's thinking that we don't need him anymore. Not just not keeping his standards, but replacing him with self. And in that, doing all these things we're seeing happen with the crowds here in Matthew 27, whether it's the passers-by or the Roman soldiers or the chief priests of the elders and the Jews. Another definition, if this is helpful, of sin here, basically saying the same thing, but sin is doing anything at all in word, thought, or deed that has as its foundation a disbelief in God's existence, goodness, or importance. Read that one more time. Sin is doing anything at all in word, thought, or deed that has as its foundation a disbelief in God's existence, goodness, or importance. Romans 14 says, 
For whatever, whatever does not proceed from faith is sin. So whatever we do in word, thought, or deed that doesn't proceed from a starting point of dependence on God through Jesus Christ actually has as its finish line sinfulness. Which if that's the case, that could include lots of good things that, that we intend to be good, or that we think we have good intention back here, but if we're doing them to, to self-deify or to show off our efforts, that's aside from God. If, if we're trying to bring about good in our own ways, on our own terms, on our watch, on our dime, into the world, it is sin. So anything at all, and this, this is going back to the tree trunk idea, going back to what we're seeing demonstrated in Matthew 27, it's high treason. It's, it's living in any way as though God is either not there at all, or maybe he is, but he's not my king, or he's not as important as a king as others like to tell me that he is. Sometimes it's loud, and sometimes it's quiet. Sometimes we don't even do it consciously. But in any case, sin is a posture of mocking and derision and or disbelief and even just disconcern. So some of you might be thinking now, but I don't do that. Like, I don't, it's not, maybe particularly as a Christian, but regardless of where you are spiritually, I haven't actually spit in the face of God. You know, and, and, you're, and you're separating yourselves here a little bit. But what helps, I think, to understand and bring us back into the, back into the storyline here is to understand that disconcern as well is just as deriding and it's just as dethroning as obvious forms of, of ridicule. I heard someone say the other day too, and I forgot who it was, so I'll just uh, say it's not my thought. But uh, it says that the opposite of love is not conflict, but rather just not giving a rip. The opposite of love is not conflict, but it's just not caring. I just don't care. Those of you who are in marriages can probably understand this. I mean, I, I would rather have a fight with my wife than have her just not care about the marriage at all. And she would probably say the same to me, right? Can I quote you on that? Done. All right, so um, it, it's, and it's the same thing with God. Like I, it, to have any degree at all of posture of, I just don't really care about him today is hatred. It's the opposite of love for him. And that's just where we all are. We're all born into that. This is not just a few of you. It's not just me. This is what the Bible says is the human condition before God. And so we're seeing a visceral side of this play out narratively in Matthew 27. But this is all encompassing. This is what we're all born into. This is the essence of sin. And actually, back in Matthew 27, I think one more comment on the narrative here that I think helps with this is, uh, this is a crucifixion, and culturally, this was a very taboo thing. The fact that we have high-class individuals here, uh, political and spiritual leaders, like the chief priests and elders, to actually be at a crucifixion, a very unclean, bloody, blood dripping everywhere, bodily fluids dripping everywhere kind of place, to actually be there is, would not have been common. It would have been strange that they were there. So why are they there? It tells us that they're, they're not just seeing Jesus' death as some kind of transaction, a necessary evil like punishing a criminal or something, but what are they doing? They're basically saying, because look how they mock him, we won, Jesus. I, we told you you weren't God. See, you're just a man. Come down. We challenge you. Come off the cross if you're the son of God, but you're not. Serves you right to mess with our law like that blasphemer. See what they're doing? They're sticking around when they probably shouldn't or just never would, and they're sticking it to him with their words 
and their actions, just like all of us have, whether quiet or loud, in our lives. And, and so what's, what's happening here, you guys, is this is all bad enough, but I'm going to revisit something uh, Peter said uh, Carlson last week when he talked about Barabbas and being the crowds calling for him and not uh, Jesus, if you were here for that. I won't go back into that. Uh, but in any case, what's happening here is bad enough, but it gets worse when we realize that these people, we, just, we looked at here, all of them are just simply pictures of, of us. See, when we read the Bible like this, what we need to do is not point the finger with, with situations like this, but, but hold up the mirror and say, ah, if I'm honest with myself, I'm just as dark. I haven't done that specifically in the exact same way, but oh man, I've done worse things here and oh, similar things there and maybe not so bad there, but pretty much the same, the same heart was in my lack of prayer here or my seeking to be my own God here or my whatever it is. The, the, the derision is present in my heart. And so when we bring that into the equation we realize really quick that if this is true, if this is really a, a, a more robust picture of sin and it's not just in these individuals 2,000 years ago, but it's right here, then we are not God's friends. We are not God's friends. Friends don't do this to other friends. We, we are the worst enemies of God. We are his arch enemies. We are children of the devil, as Jesus says elsewhere in the Gospels. Things are not okay in the world. When we realize that we are in the inner circle of the greatest coup ever staged in history against God, we should start to get a little freaked out by that, if not like almost paralyzed in fear. Rightly so. We've spit on the God of the universe, and we've mocked his kingship. We need to understand sin this pervasively, as the Bible says elsewhere, when sin gets small, uh, this is the spirit of Romans 5, when sin gets small, God's grace and our need for him gets small with it. When sin gets big, God's grace gets very, very big. And so you can't, you can't do both. You can't have a very small view of sin, a very high view of humanity. We're very, 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 very good people that are, we're not perfect, but very good people. And simultaneously have a high view of what happened on the cross. Impossible. Impossible. Oil and water. Because the cross says the opposite of that. We can't stare at the cross and say, man, I'm an amazing person. Look what it costs God, but boy, I'm still pretty good. You can't say that. It's impossible to say that. So, so the, the, it's like a dumbbell, lifting a dumbbell up. You have one weight in this side, one weight in this side. You have God's grace in our sinfulness and just the problem in the world of high treason, spiritual treason towards God. You've got to lift both of them if you lift it right, I guess, but whatever. You've got to lift both together and they both go up at the same time. So we've got to understand and have that contrasting background. Otherwise, we won't get that beautiful. Like we talked about a few weeks ago as well, the contrast idea. This beautiful, bright foreground of his. In this case, I think, we'll see it more in the coming weeks too. But even here, his response. Because he's being sinned against. This is the God of the universe who's being sinned against in this way. Look what he does. or Look what he doesn't do. How does he respond? Is he quick to anger? Is he quick to smite his enemies? Is he quick to justify and defend himself and to speak up? Like we also saw last week how he, was not, he did not defend himself, though he could have. He, had, he was just and right to do it, how he was a sheep to the slaughter. 
in his silence, what, what does he do? He could snap his fingers and erase humanity from history. What's his response? His response is the cross. That's what he does. His response is silence. His response is death. His response is, throw it on me one more time, and I will absorb it for you. See, he's not just burying the sins of looking at porn and lying to my wife every once in a while, and then there's this derision thing happening over here that just kind of is like part of the story. No, derision is over here. It's sin. Mocking God is, is what he's dying for. It's like the, the Roman soldiers and the passers-by are taking buckets of their own sin and heaping it up on Jesus in, in droves. And they're doing it as pictures of us. One last time, Jesus says, this is the genius of God in this. It's ridiculously, incomprehensibly, graciously kind and, so, and soft. He was whispering to us his love rather than shouting his wrath. Though Jesus is bearing the wrath of God to us, he's the substitute. He's bearing treason. He's taking on the debt. He's suffering for a hatred of him. He's dying to take it away. And the genius of God is that he's using the very act of our ridicule to save us from our self-deification. The very act of derision to save us from derision. The very act of spitting on him to save us from spitting on him. Not just washing us of our sin, but changing our hearts so that this is why Christians are, are worshipers. We don't stay in that place because we're blown away by that forgiveness. We're blown away by that grace and mercy. It compels us to change. Christians aren't perfect in that, but we become God-haters to God-worshippers. That's what God's in the business of doing. He's taking people who hate, who deride, who ridicule, just don't believe in existence, just don't care, and he's, and he's wooing us to come over here and say, I'm, now I'm a worship. now I care. Now he's my king again. Now I'm nothing and he's everything. This is what, this is the movement that Christians that lost sinners to found sinners make time and time and time again. So to summarize here and to wrap this up, and I'll uh, borrow from what the chief priests say in mockery to begin. Uh, they say he saved others, he cannot save himself, which there's actually a lot of veiled, veiled gospel truth there, right? Veiled truth. Because they kind of write. It's almost like he's saying close but not quite. Rather, he's, he's saved and is saving others, right, on the cross. But he's, he chooses to not save or defend himself. He can, but he's actually choosing to not or, or defend himself here as well. So it's almost like they don't know what they're saying. They're kind of saying a half-truth, but regardless, he, he is. That's the irony, right? It's not past tense saved. It's he's saving others in this moment. This is how God erases our sin. All right, so what, what do we do with this? In one sense, we do nothing. We gaze. We stand amazed. We don't cheapen it by adding to it. Like I said before, we can't look at that picture of Christ we just looked at, or better yet, the picture we get in Matthew 27, knowing it actually happened in history, and say, man, I'm a good person, aren't I? It's impossible. So we can't cheapen by, 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 by adding... We have to stand amazed and say, this is a God-given gift, not something we, that, that God is saying, look at what I'm doing, now I want you to meet me in the middle. That's not the gospel. That's Mormon theology and other forms of wicked theology, but it's not Christian theology. It's a hundred zero. 
God comes to us 100% and we give back zero. The only thing we give back is praise and thanksgiving, which isn't really a gift. It, the Bible calls that a sacrifice or something God does desire, but it's not something we pay back. and not something we... The question that's posed biblically is, is what can we give to God that he should be repaid? And we can't, there's not nothing, because he gives everything and he's God. We can't pay him back. It's just silly to think about that. So in one sense, we, we do nothing. That song we sang earlier says, be still my soul and know this peace. Be still. This is a psalmic idea. Be still. Stop moving. Stop working. Stop thinking. Stop being stressed. Know this peace. The merit or the work of your great high priest has purchased your liberty. Know it. See, a lot of the Christian life is not about doing, it's about stopping doing. It's about resting. There's stuff to do, no doubt. We'll get to that here in just a second, but it's primarily about stopping and being still. Like Mary and not Martha from Luke 10, if you're familiar with that story, uh, sitting at the feet of Christ and receiving the good portion. Not working hard to clean the house uh, like, like Martha. So in one sense, we, we gaze, we practice the art of seeing ourselves in the Roman soldiers, seeing ourselves in the robbers, the passers-by, and the Jews. We are much like them. We too have spit on God and lived as though it didn't matter much. So we develop and make bigger our definition of sin because chances are it's way too small right now. And then we come to the cross and we see that our sin held him there, yet his love kept him there. Though he was tempted to come down, he didn't. That's one of those moments you got to stop Stop at the period at the period, and say, praise be to God, he didn't come off the cross. Guys, everything hangs on that. If he listened to that, if he came off, there's no church, there's no hope. It's eat, drink, and be merry, because tomorrow we die, and to hell we go. But he stayed on. He stayed on the cross, in love for you and me. It's amazing. That's, that's a gospel, I, I, it's all gospel stuff here. That's a moment you stop, you underline that in your Bible, and you, you just pray. God, thanks be to God that you did not come off the cross. You, my king, have died for me, your enemy. It really happened. Can you believe it? This really happened in the world. Do you believe it? So in one sense, it's not about doing. It's about believing. But I think in another sense, and this goes to a greater idea of, I talked about it before, about washing and giving away out from sin. In another sense, it's about living in the fact that Jesus died for our ridicule of him and he made that way out, the way of escape. So, like, what, like I said before, what God does through the gospel is he wins us back to a right place of worship. This is what happens to a, a lost sinner like us when we're, like most of you guys have experienced this on some level and you will throughout your life, is that we, go, we move from that place of just not thinking much about God or not seeking for God, Romans 3.11, like we talked about, to a place of now we seek him all the time. We want to. We're compelled. We worship. We, we enthrone him back at the center of our universe and take ourselves way, way off. So that happens. He's won us back. He's forgiven us, taken the blow for our sin of God-directed ridicule. He's washed us, but also compels us through his act of mercy. And we experience this, on, I think, on a human level. If that's kind of an enigmatic idea, it comes up a lot in the Bible Enigmatic idea, think about it on a human-based level. So think about the last time you really offended someone or hurt someone, and you were forgiven. And they honestly said from their heart, it's okay. It's really okay. It's water under the bridge. I forgive you. It's okay. We have peace, and, and, and your life, your relationship with them goes on unscathed. That's a powerful moment, right? 
And what, what do you, what's your response? What was your response in that moment, if you can think of a time? Or what would be your response? This is hypothetical right now. What would be your response in that moment? Would it be, man, this person just dishes out forgiveness. I can't wait to sin against him again. No, it's the opposite of that, right? You'd be compelled to change your life and never do that thing again, right? Or if you do, you know, it's not perfection, but in other words, your relationship now is defined by many things maybe, but that act of forgiveness as well. It's changed something. You're married couples and you have friends, a lot of a boss or something like that, you can experience this in, on a horizontal level. How, the idea then, then is how much more with God? Because that is what has happened. You got to think about yourself, and I do, as, as committing this high treason, worst of a just wicked offense against God. And God has said, not just, oh, no big deal. He said, big deal, I'm just. It, it's punishable by hell, but I'm going to absorb it. I'm going to experience hell on the cross for you and take it away so that through that you have divine forgiveness. Forgiveness costs things. But God accomplishes that. He purchases us back from sin and death and says, through that, it's okay. Through that, come to me. Through that, don't fear banishment from me anymore. Through that, come back to the garden. Come back and dwell with me. There's no more barrier. Through that, I forget your sin. I don't remember it anymore. It's just through this that God offers us that ultimate grace. And that's what then compels us to live differently and to worship and to want to talk to him. So you can't just say, I could, I could shout for two hours up here to myself and you guys, pray harder. Or I could say, this is Jesus. He really lived. He's really like this. He loves you deeply. And I can invite you to, know, to want to know him better because you're compelled by what he's done for you. That's different, right? That's a grace-centered approach to prayer and dependence on him, and just to holy living. It's not something you can manufacture. It's just, it's given to you through the cross. So you're saved not by what you do, by what he has done for you. So be honest with yourself, and I'll, I'll say this, really wherever you are spiritually, I think this is an appropriate question. Some of you are not Christians yet. You can think about it in these terms if you'd like, but um, especially maybe for Christians. How are you, though you're saved from this, how are you functionally deriding God with your lifestyle? So you're saved, and you're not, you're not doing this to the same degree maybe you did before you were a Christian, but how is this functionally coming up? One example for me, thinking this week, is I think that a, a prayerless life for me, being in a pattern of not praying a lot, is akin to not depending on God and basically expressing with my actions, I don't need you. Why, I mean, the only reason you pray is because you need something from God, right? And you realize he's the only place I get it. So I'm going to ask him and talk to him. So for me, just having a, a season of prayerlessness uh, it's been deeply convicting, and I think for me that's a version of derision. It's a version of saying, you're my king, but not, you're not, not my king. And so it's, it's a callback to a, a lifestyle of prayer. Could be a lot of things, though, for you, but just think about that. How are you functionally deriding God with your lifestyle? Then second, what does it look like for you to do everything, in Romans 14, as though it proceeded from faith? How can you not just in your head, but in your heart and actions, be your king again? How has the cross captivated your heart, humbled you, driven you to pray continually in thanksgiving as the scriptures instruct and to share this grace uh, with others? Remember that you guys, are, if you're a Christian here today, you're freed up to do this. The shackles are off. You're freed up to do it. You're a new creation. Live in step with what the Holy Spirit is already doing in your life. You are God's sons and daughters. You're freed uh, worship him. And I think one of the things, too, I thought about um, 
first service tool I mentioned here as well, I think part of what the gospel compels us to do is to leave behind the sin of individualism and to care a lot more about church. Because church is the body of Christ. And if you want to experience Jesus, the Bible says the best place to do that is in the context of a group of believers uh, just like this. Not just here on a Sunday, but this is a big part of it, but throughout the week, the lifestyle of relationships with other Christians. Because individualism is basically saying, I don't need anybody. I just, I just don't. I need myself. That is a close cousin to saying I don't need God. Because saying I don't need the church is saying I don't need Jesus because this is Jesus. Jesus' spirit is in the community of faith, community of believers. Messed up, imperfect, sinning against each other, all of that, but covered by love, covered by grace. This is where we hear about him, sing about him, see him demonstrated in communion, and otherwise just participate in the fellowship that he offers. And so a part of what the gospel should do in saving us from derision is bring us into deep community as well. And if it doesn't, check your heart. What's that saying about how, much you, how highly you view yourself and how small you view your king and the need for others in your king? We're going to respond here in worship in a, in a couple of minutes with a couple of songs. I'll pray for us. Uh, but let's leave uh, with that in mind, that there's no sin, praise be to God, no sin bigger than the cross. And he has died a horrible death for you and me. And if you're at all thinking, my sin's too big, it's not. And because high treason's the worst, and he's died for that as well. He's absorbed it. There's nothing else. So uh, be still your soul and my soul and know this peace. The merit of your great high priest has purchased your freedom, purchased your liberty. So I'll invite the band back up here and pray. God, thanks for uh, your grace in the gospel of Christ uh, expressed in Matthew 27. Uh, thank you that you are, uh, without qualification, uh, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world and before taking it away or the means by which he takes it away, absorbing all of our sins of, of the, the mind and the body, uh, but that tree trunk idea of, of not just what we've done or not done or thought or not thought, but more so how we have lived our lives apart from you how we have been our own gods and been what's most important in our life for so long. God, forgive us. That's gotten us nowhere. It's just, it's, we're train wrecks because of it. Um, but we still just, like the Bible says, a dog to its vomit, we return back to that way of living and we eat. And it's just not going to do it. <laughs> not going to do it for us. We need the bread from heaven. We need the wine from heaven. We need the banquet that you offer us uh, in, in your body and blood. God, feed us with yourself, with the gospel of Christ and Help us to pursue that good food of grace uh, rather than the, the poison of self. Uh, God, so forgive us our sin. Help us to, as we sing these last couple of songs, just to adore you and, and to cling to the cross afresh. Uh, and as we finish up Matthew here, to just adore you and gaze and uh, to live as though it killed derision. Live as though we're washed, but also actually freed from a lifestyle of ridicule and self-deification. Amen. Amen. Let's stand and respond together. Oh, mm -hmm.